Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 218 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is There's Hope, an interview with Dr. Timothy Hasted. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, our podcast profiles the victories of individuals in the battle with Lyme disease, but I often find myself feeling hopeless about the prospect of a global solution to this growing pandemic. But today, after meeting Dr. Timothy Hasted, I feel differently. Rich, Dr. Hasted was so humble, but in our opinion, he's a genius. He discovered this drug discovery platform that he used in the cancer world, the HIV world, the autoimmune world, and even for COVID that he's now brought to the tick-borne disease community. He's identified two major problems with chronic Lyme. The first is that there's no way to accurately diagnose a chronic infection. And the second thing is there's no way to properly treat chronic Lyme as antibiotics are not effective. So he's using this technology and bringing it into the tick-borne illness community to now develop proper testing and treatments for chronic Lyme disease. Matt, I really appreciated the humility that this genius showed during the course of this podcast. And in particular, I was really moved when he said to you that he did not want to be considered a medical star because that is a really dangerous event. And what he said was that when we create these medical stars, in many cases, what happens is they stop us from having the diversity of research that we need. They essentially become gatekeepers. And that was something that allowed us to have a conversation with him about how for 30 or more years, the medical community has limited Lyme research because there were some stars very early on that placed restrictions on the research that so many people had done, such as Dr. Alan McDonald. So Matt, I'm really excited to introduce Hope and Timothy Hasted to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hey, Professor Hasted, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Uh, nice to be here. Nice to meet you. First, Dr. Hasted, we've noted an accent, which is uh, unique, at least to Long Islanders. Matt and I have our New York accent. So talk to us about where you're from. Yeah, you guys got the accent. <laughs> That's right. Not me. I'm originally from the UK. I grew up in a town called Shrewsbury, where uh, actually Darwin went to school. So that's uh, probably why I'm inspired to work in uh, biology and biochemistry. And, um, and then joined the rest of my education. <laughs> Is that right? Or where I came yeah, so, from? So talk to us here. Yeah, talk to us about uh, what inspired you to become a, um, a biochemist and what the path was to uh, becoming a uh, doctor of biochemistry. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, of all the things I took, uh, chemistry, physics, math, that was the easy one. So <laughs> I could get good grades. <laughs> I was kind of interested in... Um, you know, just how, what, what life was about, you know, and how it came to be. And, and then uh, didn't really imagine you could make a career out of that back in the seven, what, where were we? Back in the seventies. <laughs> no one remembers the seventies. <laughs> I do. It was too much of a good time. Well, yeah, you know, that's not good then. You didn't have a good enough time. <laughs> so. But anyway, so that was, you know, it was, um, a, a, an interesting career. It didn't seem like a job to me somehow because you were kind of fussing around playing with um, bugs and things and looking down microscopes. And um, and then I got interested in the idea of drugs and how they're made. And um, so I took a degree in um, biochemistry and physiology at the time and uh, in Cardiff University, which is in... Wales. I don't know if you know where Wales is, but it's <laughs> if you know okay. UK, it's consisted of a number of different nations, really. Why well, it's called the United Kingdom, and I lived in Shrewsbury, which is on the Welsh border, and I went to 
University College Cardiff, for example, South Wales, but really enjoyed that. And then uh, went on from there, you you take a but. So there's an interesting contrast between the US and the, and the UK. Right? So you go to the US, UK and you take a degree and you basically have fun for three years. And then at the end of the last two weeks of the three years, you take these exams and everybody goes crazy because they cram out, you know, they, they haven't been paying attention and, and your whole life is dependent on what happens next. You know, some people jump off buildings, they're like stressed. Whereas here, you, you do it gradually, you know, and um, um, I think that's it. the system here is better. <laughs> or, you know, real stressful there. Um, anyway, so then I, you try to get a, um, a grade that's good enough to go and do a PhD. And uh, once you achieve that, you go uh, look for someone to do a PhD with. Um, this was the height of Thatcherism when I graduated. Um, Britain was quite a... It was in industrial decline. It was very depressing <laughs> time. Um, so I decided to go, you know, move north and go to Scotland, to Dundee, to do a PhD up there. And I was extremely lucky to uh, be given a chance up there with a couple of guys um, that uh, one guy's called uh, Professor Philip Cohen, he's called Sir Philip Cohen, and another uh, guy called Graham Hardy, you know, let me work in their labs and um, get a PhD. And Dundee is an unusual place. It's a, again, it's a town on the east, northeast coast of Scotland. It's uh, uh, quite a spectacular place, really, um, um, to go. You know, so it's really fortunate there. Um, got my degree, met my wife there, and then we decided to come to America. Right, so we come to America with one suitcase and uh, go to Seattle, and I get to work with um, a really wonderful person uh, called uh, Edwin Krebs, who got the Nobel Prize in 1992 with his um, close friend Eddie Fisher for discovering how um, essentially a whole field of how proteins are regulated inside cells in response to all kinds of signals. It's a, a, um, a process called protein phosphorylation. It's led to a big explosion. They actually did the work in the early 50s and got their Nobel Prize in 1992. <laughs> you know, so for, for that body of work, and people describe them as the quintessential gentleman of science, and that's absolutely true. Um, and that was a, an, another positive experience for me. I, we love Seattle. People are going, well, it just rains in Seattle. And I said, well, have you ever been to Scotland? <laughs> I never I never knew rain came straight down. I just thought it came at you straight from <laughs> a 40-mile-an-hour wind behind it. And it rains all the time there. But in Seattle, they had something like 220 days of sunshine. You know, it's like so... To us, we were in sort of heaven, really. It sounds crazy, but we really loved it. <laughs> And uh, and then you know from there I get my postdoc. We had a fantastic time, met some fantastic people. Really fell in love with the U.S. You know, it's culture. Um, you do have a culture, by the way. It's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it was like a breath of fresh air coming from Britain. I mean, there are certain um, like my my family background is working class. My dad was a. Um, you know, he worked for the, the telephone company, he used to call the post office. 
there is a class hierarchy in the UK and it's still there really. And, you know, it really, they've done a lot to, to blend it out a bit, I think, than they used to. But back in those days, you know, it was very much in place that you felt that what your career as an independent scientist was always going to be sort of under the thumb of the establishment, you know. And in the US, you just don't give a crap. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you were from. If you can, you know, do, if you have a dream and you want to make it happen, there, there is no place in the world that you can do this. You have no idea. I don't think people growing up in the US, that Americans really understand. You step outside this country and you have, you will be constrained in many places by your background and where you come from. By a, you know, Europe is pretty a good, good example of that. Uh, Japan, you know, uh, so US, Canada, this is also true of Canada, which has got a lot more, much more similar to the US in many respects. It, it allows you, if you want it to, you know, be anybody you want to be, you really can be, you know, so. And academia is a really good uh, example of that, I think. You know, you, you, you know for me, we, we left Seattle, um, became a professor at University of Virginia. And in that time, you know, my wife integrated into, she's from Glasgow, which is, I don't know if you met anyone from Glasgow, but they, they, they you know, uh, so my wife now runs the, um, she's chief of radiology, and chief acting medical officer in, in uh, at the Durham VA, and everybody, you know, she's done a wonderful job there, and um, she's got this very strong Glaswegian accent, and actually, you know, she's quite tough, you know. And uh, my friend Neil at once said to me, "Where did you meet your wife?" You know, she's like really quite, you know, aggressive. I said, "Oh, um, in a bare knuckle fight in Glasgow." <laughs> and and he hit me like. Your butt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to get put some context into who you're dealing with, you know. So, <laughs> you know, so you know, I think he believed me. I don't think I ever got a chance to tell him. I sort of made that up a little bit. But one thing in my house is you don't show, show any signs of weakness. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so you, your wife, your wife is Scottish, and you're you're English. It's a mixed marriage. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. Um, talk That's to what us we about, have to leave. Yeah. So, Dr. said, I'm interested in how you developed a passion for biochemistry when you grew up in this blue-collar environment with your dad working for the phone company. Yeah, I guess it was, uh, we sort of lived on the edge of the countryside there um, and uh, got my bike a lot. You know, I like bugs and things. I like birds. Um, I used to love going to the ocean especially, and I became a surfer. And uh, just the nature, you know, just the appreciation of it. And uh, wanted to do that, you know, wanted to get do something in that. Didn't know what. You know, it, it, it looked at crop sciences and agricultural things for a while, which would have been kind of neat, actually. Um, and then decided that uh, um, I, I really like the, um, you know, there's some... The, the bringing together of chemistry um, and how you make a drug, you know, how do you make it work in a, in a, in a cell to actually do something that, that can help people. That seemed like an amazing 
like climbing Everest or something. It I, like I agree. Really- but so, so you had that passion during your childhood, meaning did you have that passion for, for uh, learning how a drug would positively or negatively impact um, someone's biology during your childhood or was your uh, childhood experience and that passion that you developed a little different? Definitely different. I had no possibility of understanding anything in it as a kid, you know, we, I mean, I, I just liked animals, you know, and I would be a vet or something, or I like growing plants, you know, why do they grow like that? You know, just stuff like that, you know, just, um, and then I love the ocean. I just like being in the water. If I'd see a dolphin or anything, you know, a shark or something, I just like, wow, you know, what's, you know, just, you just know, wanted to do more, something to do with that it could have been a zookeeper who knows you know at that time you don't know and then you you try to my favorite uh, uh, class in school was always biology or, or the science class so um i'd say maybe it comes from there and you know there, there was a teacher there that was pretty good i remember the only one i can remember from my school that i liked was a guy called mr jenkins and but the uh, the rest of the school was like being in prison. <laughs> it's a college place. Mealbrace Secondary Modern School, terrible. <laughs> so talk to us about how this, this passion for nature and, uh, and animals and ultimately biology in your, in your uh, lower school education brought you to biochemistry as a college student. Yeah, well, it all comes down to how things are put together. You know, you can see the animals running around and the plants growing, and then you become, well, how do they do that? You know, so uh, in such a coordinated manner, and I, I guess you get, you start to learn about cells, and well, that's pretty cool. Uh, they talk to each other and um, turn into different limbs, organs, and things. You know, I think uh, physiology was like that. How um, you know we regulate our blood pressure and just about everything about it, you know, was um, uh, fascinating to me. And I liked doing uh, uh, on top of that. So you've got all that on this side, and then when we go into biochemistry, which is sort of taking these, taking the, the fundamental components of cells, which are the proteins and enzymes and the DNA and all that stuff. I used to love those practical classes where you kind of mix stuff together or you we had to purify a protein from a tissue extract of some kind uh that's what really probably got me into biochemistry i love that because you could kind of you have these things called chromatography columns and you sort of ran these cellular goos over them <laughs> and then you could look at them you know and i thought well that's i like that a lot i love the practical aspects of that you know and that's when, you know, then you're like, so well, I want to work in a lab now. You know, so. so talk to us about that. So what, what ultimately triggered you and your wife to leave the UK and come to the US? Was that, was that in some ways related to the class system that you were working in in the UK? Or was there something else about coming to the US that, uh, that triggered the, the move? Well, it was, a, it was an adventure. But we also wanted to kind of escape, you know, the shackles. <laughs> That we are the, the oppression that we're under. No, we were really, it was an adventure to us, to be honest. You really were, you know, one of the one of the great things about a job in science is that it allows you to travel. And you meet 
incredibly interesting people that for 90% of the time are loads of fun. So that you know, international, it's very international. You get to work anywhere in the world if you want to, you know, and depending on your, what your interests are, there's nothing quite like it. So it, it's, you know, job-wise, especially, you know, we were talking about the early eighties, <clears throat> you know, no internet, nothing. Um, it was really quite, you know, fun. It was really an adventure. You know, um, maybe the world is smaller now, you know, but it was quite, you know, you had to take several planes to get to Seattle, you know, and you were really there. You didn't come back for the weekend, you know, and uh, it was a super adventure, you know, so uh, number one. And then the other one you go is you say, well, that's all very well to go have a good time, you know, but you, you needed to, if you wanted a career, you know, I'd done my PhD. If I wanted to become an independent scientist, where I worked had to be a wise decision. And I ended up working for Dr. Krebs, and it was a wise decision for me, probably not for him, but, <laughs> but uh, it was for me. You know, it really helped me. And it, it taught me a bit about uh, different styles of the way to run a lab. And uh, so that was good, uh, in contrast to my former mentors, which are quite strict in the way that they run their operation. Let's call it that. It's very um, organized and hierarchical. When I walked in the, do the door and first, my first day, it said, well, uh, Tim, what do you want to do? <laughs> like, what? I was waiting. I didn't have an answer, right? It took me about a week to give an answer. Like, was it coherent? And it was like, well, so go read all about what Ed's doing, and and then try to find some part of it. I like that. So give us give us some insight into so you. You had your week to contemplate what you were going to do now that the shackles of the British system were were yeah. removed, and you were allowed to make a decision about what you, you were interested in. So what did, mm. what were you interested in, and what did you learn during this period of your career where you were studying under um, a a prize winning scientist? Yeah, um, yeah. The first thing was. All right, I had a, I, I like, while I was in Dundee, we worked with um, a, a, a small molecule that causes shellfish poisoning. <coughs> and it, um, excuse me. And it um, is found in um, a little um, algae, it's called okadaic acid. And what it does is it attacks an enzyme in our bodies that causes muscle cramping in the guts and it gives you, you know, the shits, essentially, to put it frankly, or, um, and you get and you throw up. <clears throat> and it's targeting an enzyme in your in your gut called the phosphatase. And at that time, these were enzymes that my former mentor, Dr. Cowan, had, was a recognized expert in and was leading the field. I was quite interested in this, this little poison. And um, so I sort of started to work on that in Dr. Krebs's lab, but looking at it in the context of regulating the signaling pathways involved in cancer and insulin action, which nobody else was doing. Um, and I, you know, I would purify this stuff from these organisms and use it. I loved it, you know, because you could isolate it yourself and, um, and, and sort of 
purified it and then started to look at it in cells and what it did to um, signaling pathways that were controlling growth and ended up writing a paper with Dr. Krebs on that story about how these, these um, phosphatases would control these other, these other signaling uh, proteins to damp their effects and things. And, um, and that sort of actually started me thinking about everything I was going to do in my, my subsequent career. I got interested in these, you know, small molecules, we call them. Um, this one was a natural product called ochidate acid. And it turned out that through other people's work, there were uh, several of these in nature that, that uh, were poisons that um, algae produce. Um, there, there's, um, I'm sure you, you may have heard this before, but there's, in the microbial world, there's this battle, chemical warfare going on between these communities. You find it in coral reefs to soil everywhere. They're producing all these chemicals that attack each other's proteins really and unfortunately animals and ourselves get to eat those sometimes and the consequences are dire and they're constantly evolving with each other so there's sort of like this drug discovery process going on driven by evolution in the soil and in the water you know and that's the whole field it's called natural products chemistry um which is something i wasn't going to pursue because uh, I, I thought there was a better way to do this which farmer had realized a long time before me um, to make things synthetically, not naturally, because natural products, these, these are quite complex molecules that nature derives over how many millions of years. Uh, um, but, but I like that. I mean, I like trying to figure out how these poisons worked. And the phosphatases we are working on turn out not to be good therapeutic targets. Um, so during my independent career, let's call it that, when I leave Dr. Krebs's lab and I go to start my own lab in Virginia, at the University of Virginia, um, in the Department of Pharmacology. Now I'm looking, you know, to try and um, start something else, something new, which is, so, you know, to try and put a stamp on what I do rather than follow, that's the transition between the postdoc, you know, the postdoc trying to you get inspired to want to become independent, make a career. So the postdoc is sort of a critical time in a scientist's life, right? You, you have sort of, I guess, four paths. One is you get out of it because you hate it so much, you get into something else. You go into the industry um, or you try to become a, um, a researcher, you know, and you, and you, you so so that Nathan, why why did you choose the University of Virginia? Why was that the place you decided you were going to begin your independent career? Uh, that, interestingly, that you know, as with all things, luck <laughs> played a game. That was a, a a bit of a coup for me to do that. I mean, I was very very fortunate. When you work with a guy like Dr. Krebs, you get to meet people that are influential, uh, people in the field that are leaders in the field. Um, Ed gave me a number of opportunities to speak publicly, you know, as a postdoc on his behalf, which is like a huge deal. And then I managed to uh, get a, um, a speaking slot on the work we were doing on these phosphatases at a 
international meeting. There was a FASEB meeting they called in Colorado. And so on the bill in front of me was um, the, the chairman of a guy called Jim Garrison, a wonderful man um, who was the chair of the department I ended up working in. He gave a talk right in front of me and he talked about some of the things we were doing with this okadaic acid. And then I talked about the next talk was me. So there was one. Uh, so when, you know, when you imagine when you submit your application, that person doesn't go. The worst thing that can happen to you is they go, read this and they go, who? <laughs> you <know? laughs> so you can say, well, I met that guy, right? So, and then the other piece of luck was um, a guy called Tom Sturgill, who was also at the University of Virginia, who was at that meeting. And then shortly after came to Seattle, you know, and he, he gave a talk and we went to dinner and he told me about, they were looking for folks at, at UVA and it's all over to that place. And a very, another Nobel laureate. So in fact, they've had three, you know, that came out of there. Um, was that guy called Al Gilman who was famous for discovering what's called G protein coupled receptor signaling. Um, so that was good. And, you know, Barry Marshall came from there. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Marshall. Yeah, he came from, he was there when I were there. You know, they didn't give him tenure. I couldn't believe that. But <laughs> they regret that. Fantastic person. Absolutely. You know, we all know his story. Um, anyway, so it was a good place to go. Okay. <laughs> so you're, so, uh, and, and obviously, again, one of the top schools in the U.S., you seem to mm -hmm. have a, a, an affinity for the top schools. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, you're, 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 your time at Duke, but let's let's focus a little bit more on your time at UVA. So you're, you're at the University of Virginia, and what work are you doing there, and how is that different from the work you were doing in Seattle? Um, it started out with, uh, um, well, first, I, I, Ed had said this to me. He, he understood if you wanted to continue to work in the same area as him, but he didn't think that was healthy um, to compete with him. And, and I agreed, you know, that, you know, we, we, you need to find your own niche, you know. So, um, so I went back to my days, you know, undergraduate days, and I really quite enjoyed muscle uh, and physiology type things and try to combine that with biochemistry. And again, super fortunate, always been luck, always plays a game. And there's an old saying, and it's my motto, it's become my motto that, you know, um, luck fa favors the prepared mind. You know, you, you know, I say that over and over again. It's Louis Pasteur said this, uh, in probably more elegantly. But um, there was a couple of, of folks there, um, Andrew and Avril Somlio, who were famous in smooth muscle biology, which is all your vascular. And I worked in protein, I had a protein kinase background. I worked on these phosphatase things. They had these probes we were developing to manipulate those phosphatases. And, and so the, together, they we, we all got together. And, they, and, and Avril, who's a, a wonderful person, um, sort of mentored me while I was developing as an assistant professor. And we, we got some grants together and it, and it was really good. It, and it enabled me to get interested in these other proteins called protein kinases that um, are the signals that, that change muscle contraction and affect its plasticity and its um, physical properties, you know? So sort of, and I quite like the idea of developing tools, compounds that are called probes, like, my, like these phosphatase inhibitors 
that would target these enzymes called protein kinases. And, um, you know, and I liked it also because working with Andrew and Avril, they had this physiology that they had set up. They, they could take little single muscle fibers and put them in little devices that measured the muscle contractions. And the idea then was I could add either the proteins to those little fibers to see what they did or drugs that we were making or thinking about making um, to see what they did. You know, so you have like this evolution of drug development now that's, that's became, you know, what we've been doing ever since really. Um, so that, that, that's, uh, it was a, a progression of, you know, it was no eureka moment necessarily other than a lot of good luck. And, um, you know, that went really well for me. And I love those guys. I mean, they were, the UVA in general was a huge positive for me. And it was like cutting an arm off to leave that place. And, um, and I felt like a big shit <laughs> for doing that. You know, they help you. But the nature of this business is you have to keep pushing forward. And sometimes, you know, if, if you're constrained in that, you're not going to be happy. So, so why don't we talk about that transition now to Duke University, the uh, home of the Blue Devils, uh, the one of the top basketball programs at Mike Krzyzewski. Talk to us about uh, what attracted you uh, to Duke and, and caused you to leave UVA. Ooh, yeah. yeah. So, so we're, do, we're doing all this muscle stuff. And then I, um, an emerging field at the time was something called protein kinase inhibitors. And these were drug, these were going to be drugs. Um, so it turns out these protein kinases, there are um, 580 odd types of these enzymes in cells, and they control most of what we do and what we are from everything in our head to um you know in our bodies uh, many of them are associated with diseases and particularly cancer and um, autoimmune diseases lots of maladies and people for a long time now have been focused on them as drug targets new targets a new type of drug which is called a molecularly targeted drug. And they're challenging targets and pharma has embraced them and hated them <laughs> and re-embraced them. You know, it really, and some of them have become successful drugs and they're out there. Um, but I was quite interested in that. And so this is sort of like, um, where are we then? Mid nineties moving on. And there's a, at this time, there's a the biotech revolution is beginning, and and it begins with the excitement around it is in the Human Genome Project. I don't know if you remember that one, um, in which you know uh, industrialized sequencing of human genomes begins, and out of this is why we have things like the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. By the way, the BioNTech. And there were other wonderful guys out of Canada that came up with the technology that allowed us to have this vaccine, which has changed. I think it has changed the face of drug discovery and how we see view infectious diseases in the future. I think it's going to be a positive. One of the positives of COVID has got to be that 
recognition that human disease through infections is, is important, if not more important than cancer and other things. So there's some changes that are coming around the corner. We're in the middle of a big change. But anyway, you know, the, the human genome project's happening, the biotech bubble. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on, people like, investing in biotech. So in my lab, we had developed this methodology to screen all these protein kinases at once. And you could catch them all on a, on a, on a chemical resin that we had synthesized based on a product called ATP, which is a natural thing in cells that we linked it to a resin. And what we found with that was that we could catch all of the proteins in a cell, not just these protein kinases, but all the ones that bind to uh, this protein, this this small molecule called ATP, which is the fuel of the cell. It's about 2000 things. We get them all in one place and then we start to interrogate them against chemical libraries which are small molecules. And, uh, and you can create these chemical libraries from a process called combinatorial chemistry. Sorry to drop all these. But this is the basis of things of what modern pharma did, did at the time and still does. It screens these big libraries against their favorite targets. In our case, we catch it on this big resin and we can screen them all at once. And to me, that's, I, I recognize this as huge utility. Um, and um, and I've, now I've, ungra- I've sort of outgrown my lab at, at uh, UVA. And it became a conflict, really, with the, with the university in some respects, because UVA is a very traditional place. And at that time, they were not so amenable to the idea of doing a spin-out or forming a company. Because I also recognized that I can do all this academic stuff, but if we make something, if you want to get it into... The um, into people, it has to get into industry's hands at some point. So we sort of hit this. And so I was giving this talks and I'm going around, you know, the usual talking at meetings, meeting people. Um, the university of uh, UT Southwestern got interested in what we were doing and were interested in hiring me out of UVA. Other people at Duke see that and tell a long story short, I end up coming to Duke. It also suited my wife, most importantly. She just graduated from uh, medical school and she does radiology and the Duke's radiology program is the top place to go, you know, so it made sense from that point of view. But Duke also allowed me to form a company and we formed this company called Serenex where we house this, this platform technology and we got venture funding to support that. And we even did it in a garage in downtown Durham, opposite the YMCA. It's quite a cliche. It's a real garage. It really is. I can show you a picture. It's still there. <laughs> and um, we put a company in Amazon, it. Amazon and Hastead started the same place. In the ah, yeah, well, I think uh, yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a tiny scale, you can make that comparison, I think, with but literally, we did. Uh, you know, as a, as, it's a cliche. Every startup begins in a garage. I mean, it, but it, but it did in this case, and it wasn't intentional. It, it was quite hard to find space at that time, believe it or not, in the RTP Research Triangle Park to put a lab in. So we put in a garage, and um, it lasted eight years. I, I uh, 
owned it all to owning hardly anything <laughs> at the end. But it was uh, it was fun for most of the time. It was fun, and they made something. We actually used the process, and we made this inhibitor that targets a protein called HSP ninety, <clears throat> which is was a quite a hot target at the time, and still kind of is. Um, it went, you know, Pfizer acquired in in two thousand and eight by the company, and um, the whole thing evaporates right there but we did put something we made pills that went into people it wasn't all bullshit <laughs> and there's so, the, yeah that's the bit so, that Neil attracted Neil so so let's let's pause let's pause there for a second and talk about the process that you created and 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 the importance oh. of you setting up your your private company so it sounds to me that the what, what you're sharing with us is you left UVA and you came to Duke because Duke gave you the dual opportunity of continuing your mm. academic path, but also supported you in setting up your company. So uh, the the name of your company uh, you said it was Saranax, and what was the yeah. what was the spirit of uh, what, what did that mean, and why did you choose that name? Oh yeah, right. So that's interesting. Yeah. So um, so serene is peace of mind and. And serendipity is um, a happy circumstance, right? So, and, and good fortune. So that was really where that comes from because we were trying to argue that our process allowed us to define what we call chemical starting points that were intrinsically selective for our target and had less off-target liability. So a lot of drug programs, uh, lead molecules as they're developed have off-target off off-target um, effects or side effects. Our process, we were claiming, and I still believe it to be true, would identify uh, chemical starting points, let's call it that, these small molecule starting places that were intrinsically selected for the enzyme we were interested in and had a built-in, it removed their liabilities uh, by being uh, very selective at the beginning of the process. And that's what we were trying to say discriminated us from that. So that's why Serenex, it was sort of like serene being the Latin for peace of mind. Somebody's going to correct me, but I think that's true. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, serendipity is, you know, word that was coined when somebody saw Shangri-La or something or some, or I can't remember the name of the country, sorry. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's for, um, uh, good luck, uh, you know, and, and good fortune and all that sort of stuff. So, so you created a process that would identify or limit side effects at the outset. Yeah, yeah essentially, yes. Yeah, it was, there's a, there's a process involved in the development of a drug that um, now is, you know, it's an empirical one we use, but it, it uses uh, a lot of molecular biology and structural biology. And, to find something that mimics something in nature and make it synthetically and then have it behave in a drug-like fashion and be selective is very hard. <laughs> um, but it, it's a help if you can find something at the get-go get that has what I call intrinsic selectivity for the target. And then and, and it's, all, it's liabilities down the path are, then become less. And then you sleep nights in knowing that you have a pretty good 
in within yourself that this shouldn't hurt somebody. <laughs> it should help them. <laughs> help them help them the way it's intended. So so talk yeah. to us now about um about your your time at Duke and uh and some of the some of the influences that you met at Duke. You you seem to have this career where you're you're constantly meeting leaders mm. in various fields, yeah. regardless of the place that you go to. And yeah. and uh, when you're at Duke, you meet one of the stars in the Lyme community. Yeah, you're drawn to them or the, or the other way around. I think they come to me, and um, I'd like to think that. <laughs> uh, Neil is the... Um, so I, I got into the Lyme business, if you like, uh, about five years ago with Neil. I had a... And this is, this is Neil Spector. Yeah, Neil, Dr. Spector, yeah. So he, but I know Neil a long time before that because we both worked in... Protein kinase mediated signaling and drug development in that space, and I had been developing my own program around uh, when. So Serenex gets bought in two thousand eight. We'd actually made a deal in that company with Neil while he was at GSK to look at one of his kinases, and he told me that that you know the that we did indeed that, that they they'd given us one of their their lead molecules, and we tested in our system. We identified some off targets with it and told them what was wrong with their molecule. And he said, you were actually right. You know, so he, he got to test our system, if you like. And I think that gave him a little bit of uh, faith in me that what we were saying wasn't, was real. And um, so we've sort of met before he comes to Duke. I'm already at Duke when he comes there. And I, I've been working on a new um, uh, set of molecules that target this heat shock protein, HSB90, and had worked with a, a, um, a group of physicians that enabled us to get molecules we made against that protein, that form of that protein into clinic. We put two in there that are in clinical trials in phase one that allow us to image uh, we think it's a, a treatment for metastatic or detection of metastatic disease and a treatment path. And uh, Neil was familiar with this stuff too. And he's listening to this stuff. You know, he listens to my talk. He's one of the few people in the audience that isn't sleeping. <laughs> so I think he was an insomniac. That's what <laughs> So anyway, uh, you know, so uh, he, he, you know, he, he came, I guess, Let's, let's see, when did he really come to see me? Maybe five or six years ago, he said, we just got uh, one of our new new molecules into people. We were, we were down that path. We were on a clinical, clinical path. And he just asked me, could you do this for Lyme disease? And I said, um, yeah, what's that? <laughs> I knew what Lyme disease was because my wife had gotten it. I got a great story there if you want to hear it. Um, Definitely. All right, she's the toughest person on the planet. Okay, so one day she comes um, in and she's got like this red blob on her back of her calf. Uh, and she goes, Oh, man, what's that? I think that, well, that looks like a tick bite. That looks like, I said, that looks like Lyme to me. It wasn't a bullseye, but it was a red, it looked weird. Sure enough, she gets the test and test positive. Only problem is she's in the first trimester of our daughter's uh, of a, you know, a, a pregnancy with my daughter, now 18-year-old daughter. So 
Um, the problem with that is, and this is a huge issue, and I don't think people bring this up enough, you can't take doxycycline if you're pregnant, right? It's, it's uh, um, tetragenic, right? So remember that. Uh, so what do we do with pregnant women? You know, so if you start reading the literature, which I did, you know, there's a few papers showing uh, increase, you know, untreated Lyme in women that are pregnant can lead to um, early miscarriage, spontaneous abortion, late-term abortion, you know, not abortion, the wrong word. Um, miscarriage. Miscarriage. Apologize for that. Um, uh, so it's serious, right? So what's the next recourse is... Um, I think she was on, I think it was ampicillin they gave her, which is not a soluble drug. It has to be given by injection. And um, uh, which was in the backside, and it's quite a big volume, and you've got to have that every day. And um, so it was so painful for her that um, she said, I'm going to lose this baby. You know, this is stress, this is stressful. So so the next option is to come in every day for an IV infusion, you know, sit there for a couple of hours a night or whatever. And then she goes, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician. Um, I can do that myself. So she's sitting at the, at the kitchen table every day with a stopwatch in, in front of her and this big syringe. And she's just slowly infusing this thing into her arm, knowing that if she, pushed it in you pass out and kill yourself <laughs> so i'm just thinking you know so you know we all we're males we don't know shit you know we can't have an opinion even on <laughs> but i'm just thinking that this person really knows her stuff you know i mean most of us would be like oh my god you know it's gonna hurt the baby it's gonna come out with multiple heads or something you know um, but she really knew it, you know, you just thought, holy, this person really knows what she's doing. If you're prepared to do that to yourself in, in that situation, you know, uh, I really admire that. You know, I've never, you know, I always remember that, that, um, that's how tough she is. You know, I think a lot of people would be freaking out over that or would go, go into the hospital, uh, but she wanted to, she was on, um, rotations. You don't want to let a team down, you know, uh, so I can do this myself. I'm going to take two hours out of the day. I'll sit there and I'll, <laughs> and then it's the house of pain. And, and our daughter is now a, a student at Duke. So everything turned out great, you know, it was a, uh, just like her mom, you know. So Dr. Hayes said, what was the antibiotic or the drug that she had to infuse into her arm every day? I think it was ampicillin. She'd have, I'd have to ask her. She's, she's working the day, so I couldn't tell you, but I think it was, I could be wrong. But it wasn't a oral. It had to be given uh, IV, and it's and it doesn't cross the uh, placental barrier, so it's safe to take. Um, you know, in in pregnancy. So I want to touch back on Saranex and the sale of Saranex, and then your work with Dr. Spector. But before we go there, I just want to highlight what Rich and you were discussing that you literally discovered this drug discovery platform that changed the way we look at drug discovery as as a society essentially, right? So what is different about your drug discovery platform, which I believe you call this proteome mining technology? Yeah, yeah. And, and how did it streamline the discovery of drugs? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, my, that is but one example of the way that people look at 
the way we go at drugs. I mean, I've used it and we, we continue to use that process. I've, we, I formed another company recently called IDIS Bio that's used the same process to develop an anti-inflammatory agent. So for me, it has worked out really well. And academically, we've been funded heavily since 2008 to continue the work. We made these new two things that are in, in um, clinical trial at Duke. Uh, we've got great big plans for um, uh, another version of that for cancer and breast cancer. And a lot of all that has been morphed into the a new area for us is, is this infectious disease play. Um, but there are other platforms like what I, you know, have the same kind of thoughts. It's not, you know, to be fair to everybody else, people like the, uh, they, they call it omic approaches to drug discovery. They're trying to look at all, lots of variables at once and finding ways of crossing them against each other, if you like, to filter out um, new drugs and things that um, could lead to new tech, new you know uh, molecularly targeted therapies. It's not. It, it would be wrong for me to claim <laughs> that we're the only people doing. It. We just happen to do it this way, and um, it's somewhat embraced by other people in other places. They can. There's a couple of other companies that sort of do a similar thing, um, you know, um, out there. It's not necessarily just me. I mean, I think it would be a bit much to, to say that we had changed the face of drug discovery. I think most people in pharma would balk at that. There, there are ways that, that it's done and there are ways that I do it and the way, you know, that, that is amenable to um, someone like me in an academic lab and allows me to, um, you know, spin things out into companies. It's, it's sort of a bit of a unique thing, you know. It's, uh, but there are other platforms out there. Some of them are much more industrialized than, than, than what I do. Um, I mean, they're very complex, complex things, but it's, it, 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 you know, they're in the same vein and same spirit. So I understand that you're, you know, I, th I think you're being a little too humble. Just so for our listeners, I mean, you've been awarded grants by the Na National Institute of Health. You've been awarded grants by the Department of Defense, by the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation, right? You've been, you've been awarded grants by the Bay Area Lyme Association. So clearly your drug screening platform that you've developed has seeked the attention of major, major players out there. And it's something that's changed the way people think about drugs in many industries, not just the tick-borne disease community. I mean, you've been working yeah. in the cancer community. You've been working in the autoimmune community. You've been working yeah. in the HIV community, right? I mean, you've right. taken this platform and you've, you've brought it into many, many different areas of disease and have yeah. had success, correct? Yeah, I would count success when we get a pill into people safely. And until you do that, you can't say anything. Really, you, you can say all of that, but until you, that's it. so. If you know, if my last, what I would, you know, my last thoughts <laughs> passing away somewhere um, would be that, you know, you could say, yeah, I did that. If you can make a drug, it is not the same. If you make a drug and you get it into people, you get an, what's called an NDA and it's a real drug. We are still on that path. So you do that, you, you, you can't really, you know, have the parade and <laughs> say it was a win. You know, it's that's why I said it's a process. 
Right. It, 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 from my perspective, it, it's been wonderful. You know, I've, I've run my lab. We've, we've got tons of resources. We've got these big missions we're on to, to get to where we want to go. But it's not, the, the battle's not over. And, you know, I, I think too many of us are sort of self-congratulating ourselves on, until you get it over the line. It doesn't mean a thing. Well, let's yeah. talk about that a little bit, though, Dr. Hastead, because yeah. you did sell Serenex, your company, after eight mm. years of working mm. to Pfizer, right? I mean, this, this yeah. giant. And Pfizer now, I believe, has been taking your work and working towards getting it into the industry for a cancer treatment, correct? Uh, no, not so much. I, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I, I think that uh, Pfizer took on our drug and sort of then got out of the HSB 90 business about two years in. It's difficult pharma. They, they get excited, they pay a lot of money for it, and then they lose interest in it. And actually what happened with that drug was that it was taken up again by uh, the original VC group who championed it all the way to phase three, where it's now languishing at, um, it's called SNX5422, and it's languishing in phase three looking for money to get it over the line. Uh, you know, so it has passed from my hands a long time ago. You know, that's exactly what you wanted. What we what we do, what we'd like, what we try to do, is get things that have um, value that work in people, and it has to be handed to somebody that can get that over the line into people, and you know, so it has to work. You have to be able to, you know, going to give it to a big farmer organization. They're going to practice it every day. Um, the caveat is that pharma is a business <laughs> and it wants quick returns and it and it's a very fickle person to you know hook up with because they'll change with the wind <laughs> they come in and out of the business and that's the negative part of it all because your baby that you believe in you know you might the person that took it from you might have been a believer but if if the regime that they're in <laughs> The wind changes, then it's gone. You know, that's many a drug have gone that way. So well, I think the good news is, though, that you mentioned the venture capitalist who worked with you in the beginning is now picking this back up and bringing it forward, it sounds like, correct? Well, they were, yeah, yeah. They, they, they championed it from 2010 all the way up to now. And they're, they're trying. There's a wonderful guy in charge of it right now, a guy called Steve Hall, who just believed in this <laughs> for so long is really one of the fathers of the whole thing you know with without him Serenix wouldn't have been got as far as it did no doubt about it you know it's always a team effort when I say that's not just somebody the reason I work with other people is that I this is what I do and that Neil was the you know had this um, perspective farmer's perspective together we were you know we were a team you know we worked well together so you got to try to bring in people like i in my lab i have uh, full-on medicinal chemists i am not a medicinal chemist but i understand what they do to me they they are everything they everything in my lab is is because of them i have a wonderful guy that works with philip hughes who just is a brilliant medicinal chemist i'm so lucky and i've had two others like that and um so it's always a team effort so um you know what I do will only, I could only parade about it. <laughs> if 5422 became a drug in people and you, you know, it was prescribed, we would declare victory. 
you, you can't declare victory if it's not there yet. You know, it's, it's close, but until it's there, you can't, you, you can't shout about it <laughs> in my opinion. In that case, and I applaud your your vision to get these sure. drugs into people to mm-hmm. actually make changes, real powerful changes in people's lives. Mm-hmm. But I do I do think that there are other things to celebrate. I mean, your drug discovery oh. platform is something to celebrate, right? And talk yeah. to us about that because you you know we've heard you we've read a lot about you and we've read that you talk about the drug discovery process is very manual and it's really all about luck. And mm-hmm. your platform and your technology has allowed you to streamline that process to increase the odds to be in your favor. So how, you know, in in lay terms, how does that work? What is your technology and how does this streamline the drug discovery process that you are now using in a wide variety of disciplines? Yeah, so um, actually you you hit it right on on the head there. And actually my friend, Steve Hall, when we interviewed him said to me, you make luck work for you. Um, that's exactly true. You know, that's exactly how it works. It, it, it basically takes two variables um, and crosses them against a common denominator, which is the ATP molecule, and it filters them. And that allows us to, f- to find these um, uh, high quality lead molecules that you can really do something with. So, um, uh, you know, w- w- from there, we will employ structural biology and a whole bunch of modern tools to advance the project. And we can do that within an academic setting because of that. But the hard part was this crossing of the two variables. You've got all these, you've got all these variables on one side, all the proteins that the drug could interact with. And then you've got this thousands of collections of these molecules. And our thing would, our, our common denominator in the middle, which is the ATP, with these proteins bound to it, you could filter it through there. And you're sort of looking at probability, right? To, to find something that interacts and then measuring that interaction in terms of its uh, affinity for the target, potency, that'd be another word for that. And it's selectivity against everything else. And it's that, that pairing. Then the third variable is the medicinal chemistry part. Can you make that into a drug? And Another thing that we are able to do is use um, medicinal chemists' knowledge. So the library on this side that we're screening of all these small molecule things, these thousands of things, there was some art in that too. There, were, there was some thought that went into what that library should be. And so we work with m- many talented medicinal chemists. Uh, Steve Hall was one. And there's another guy called Jim Veal that was in the company. Um, Philip Hughes in in, in my lab and all got together to create this, again, to increase the probability that we would find something that would bind to things over here. So, um, and then the key piece was this little piece in the middle, which was this medium that you caught all this. So you really tried to increase the odds and probability of finding something (laughs) that you could work with. (laughs) That's really drills down to how it works. Dr. I said you did discover a drug, this SNXS5422, which inhibited the, the target protein HSP90, you had mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. correct? And, yes. and, and that in itself, I think, was a major discovery because there seems to be a lot of overlap between cancer, HIV, and possibly tick-borne illness with this oh, HSP90 yeah. you know, protein yeah. that you can essentially yeah. inhibit with the use of that drug. So talk to us about yeah. how you discovered that and, and how can something so basic as, you know, for, for you know, 
people that aren't aren't brilliant like you how can something how can something as basic as a protein like hsp90 be involved in so many different diseases like hiv and lyme and tick-borne illness and cancer and how can this one drug help all those different disciplines yeah no it's a it's a conundrum in some respects on the surface because it's a that's never going to work but there's more to hsp90 biology than meets the eye um it, it functions in many uh, diseases. Um, it's a protein that is required for protein folding, so that they, you know when proteins are, are made on the ribosome, they have you have this big long polypeptide of amino acids. Well, this protein is thought to coordinate the way they fold up, and it turns out in cancer, tumors or oncogenes sequester that protein somehow. And if you inhibit its activity in tumor cells, it you know has a it, it stops the growth of the tumor. They, the tumor cells go into what's called stable disease. Uh, who knew? You know, this was actually found out with a drug. It was found out with a natural product by a good friend of mine called Len Neckers up at the NCI. He was screening a natural product library. You go back to the, this is a thing made by fungi. Back to the microbes and things and. He'd found it. It's called galdanomycin, and he—they were actually doing a clinical trial with this drug. And uh, I was actually involved with him showing that galdanomycin targeted this protein HSP90. And when I first contacted him back in the '90s, I asked him for some of his galdanomycin. I said I wanted to pour it over my column of ATP with all this other stuff to see if I could get HSP-90, because it was annoying me. It was in the way of some other thing I was working on. And lo and behold, we run this, we run through this experiment and we get a pure HSP-90 band, you know, pure protein coming out with a single drug out of 2,000 things. And that just, that just turned me on to, this idea works. And Len said it was important to me. And he said, so he said something fundamentally, so you know, so he said something like, so HSP90 binds ATP. And they go, yeah, you know, it turned out I'd stumbled into some controversy in the field. So together we wrote a, wrote a, wrote a paper about it and it came out. And um, so that, that became my roadshow, actually. I would use these libraries that Len had gotten for this galdanomycin and we could show, we could see all this HSP90 stuff going on with the different types of molecules related to the original one. and and then said, well, we can expand this to big libraries. And that's how we got Serenix funded. Um, but HSP-90 um, is conserved in um, every species, practically from prokaryotes, which are bacteria like uh, Borrelia, and um, all the way through yeast and uh, parasites to humans. And... Um, but interestingly, you know, and what's the, the basis of the Lyme project and, and what Neil had asked me about was if you looked at the HSB90 protein amino acid sequence, it varies between species. We all know they have their HSB90 in prokaryotes. It's called HTPG, which I can never remember the, it's like heat protein something G. <laughs> uh, it's a very boring name in the, um, Humans, it's called heat shock protein 90 because it's weight. Um, 
But it fascinated me because if you look at the, if you line all these amino acid sequences of all these different species, which we have done many times, from Borrelia, E. coli, malarial forms, leash mania, compared to human, the drug binding sites in where the ATP is conserved in its interactions with that molecule, but there are amino acids in between that are different, quite different. And this is a, a chemical biologist's or, or drug discoverer's dream lab in terms of now thinking about making drugs based on that target for that species, that it could be not only therapeutics, but diagnostic tools too, in a, in a, in a practical way um, that's quick. Um, so this is what Neil was interested in. And what he'd asked me about, um, could we do it? And I said, yeah, we've been trying to do it with malaria with a wonderful person called Emily Derbyshire at, at uh, Duke in the chemistry department here. And we even published papers on it, um, showing that you could tease out the two species, human versus malaria in that case. And he said, well, if you can do that, can you do it for Borrelians? And, you know, there was a, a swear word, yeah. <laughs> and then we got into it you know so um and it's the so same example yeah sorry sorry Joe, but real quick you mentioned that you can tease out the protein for you know human versus bacterial or potentially something like malaria so is mm. that how you use it in a diagnostic model is where you look for that protein that's yep. connected to a particular virus or, or pathogen or, yeah. or something like that and that's how you, then you build a a test yeah. around that to look for that protein that's associated with that pathogen Ultimately, that is what our goal is with, with Borrelia, is to use that target for um, as a diagnostic, non-invasive diagnostic, and the same target to treat. And the, the value, we call it companion diagnostic. It's the same idea in cancer, is that you've got this, and we've made a companion diagnostic in cancer too, and then we also have a treatment. So the idea based on the same target. So what we call the ligand part that binds to this HSB90 HTPG protein, what we're able to do with that, it can act as a drug on its own. It can inhibit that enzyme and have an effect like it was developed in cancer. But more recently we found we can put what we call tethers to this thing. It's like a molecular arm made of a substance called polyethylene glycol. Um, and on that, we can attach a toxin or an imaging agent or a pet agent. And the idea then is to use that ligand with this tethered thing to develop this new uh, approach that will allow you to, with pet, diagnose the presence of the, of the organism in people, which I think is a critical thing for um, Lyme disease, you know, to try and get at that conundrum you know that we've all been trying to get at you guys have been trying to get at do i have an underlying infection i believe i have and if you don't then it's something else i'm going to ask neil about that we can talk about that what that would mean he said that's just as important as showing it's there so um you know so once you've seen it it's not enough just to see it okay you, maybe we've done some help there Maybe we can treat it, but the same molecule could now be used to treat it, to eliminate it. That's our that's our big mission.
So, Dr. Hester, this is fascinating. So you're working on a definitive test to be able to tell people, yes or no, you have the Lyme bacteria in your body, mm. and you're using the same underlying technology to then mm. work on a treatment modality to address mm. the, ba- the, the bacteria if you have it, essentially, is what you're working on. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one of the things that I really wanted to explore with you is, you know, we've come to understand, and I'm curious if you agree or disagree, that many people, most people, in our opinion, probably all people who are sick with chronic Lyme disease, it's never just the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria. Mm. It's never just Lyme, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was reading your research, I started to think, mm. how is a targeted drug for Borrelia going to cure chronic Lyme? And I didn't think it would. But mm. having this discussion, I'm starting to realize that this technology can be used to look for proteins that are associated with parasites, mm-hmm. other viruses like reactivated Epstein-Barr potentially, um, yeast, which yep. is another common problem. So you can, you can look for all of the commonly associated ailments with Lyme and almost address them all individually and, and make this sort of like an a la carte approach to all the things that can keep people sick with chronic Lyme disease. Is that, is that a good way to think about this in the, in the, in the long term, sure. in the big picture? Yeah, like we, we you know, we, I'm writing a paper right now on this, on the work we have done that was funded by the Cohen Foundation, you know, with Neil. We started it with Neil and it's like, you know, unbelievable that we lost him. Um, but something has come out of that, believe it or not, we, We've developed these molecules. And Neil published one paper on it before he passed away um, that came out of his lab that shows, you know, that in principle it should work. Um, um, you know, we, we uh, um, that was my thread. <laughs> um, could you rephrase that again? I just... Sure, so I guess the, fr- the first part of my question is, do you believe that people suffering from chronic Lyme disease are suffering from something beyond just an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's co-infections. Uh, there's there's some wonderful work by Michelle Bumbar, Bumbar, sorry, um, from UC Davis that shows that um, uh, Borrelia infection in animal model can make those animals susceptible to flu infections. So, and these, you know, many uh, bacteria and viruses, and COVID is a great example suppress or interfere with our immune system and they they do that in an insidious way and i have no doubt that that borrelia can do that you know and uh, so a co-infection is highly likely and this could you know explain the various manifestations of chronic disease you know I, i'm sure it's there's a big autoimmune element involved and that you know that this is the key question that we want to ask right is and we have to do it one step at a time process, right? So if we can really make a probe with a, by, by PET, which is probably about the most sensitive way you could do this, see you know, a chronic infection in a human being, that's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal for, hopefully for the Lyme community. It's a big deal because it also, you know, in this paper we're writing changes the paradigm for how we think about antibiotic development. For some reason I'm not allowed to use the word. People refer antimicrobial to antibiotic, but um, because it, it says that at the target that we're looking at in, in Borrelia actually is con- would be considered a housekeeping enzyme. It's e- expressed at all stages of the Borrelia life cycle, which is actually important for our approach, but inhibiting it enzymatically doesn't seem to do anything but that's why you use these tethered things and we can bring in these 
imaging agents and then the toxins or the isotopes to kill the thing. Um, and if we can do that for Borrelia, which is quite a challenge because it's got, you know, it's a spirochete, it's got a double cell wall. This is quite a drug challenge. If we can do that, well, why can't we do it for everything else? That's a, that, you know, so that would be a game changer. So this paper we're writing right now is going to say that. And it's going to show the dramatic effects of our drug on the biology of Borrelia. It causes complete condensation of its chromosome to a single double helix right smack in the middle of the organism and they don't come back. So a single dose does that. Um, so then the key piece is, so that's sort of an antibiotic, if you like, or an antimicrobial. If we could see the thing in the people that, that have the disease, then use you know, the drug to direct therapy, then that maybe help them. You know, that may be a big help. And um, so, you know, bringing those two things together is key. And it's all around this same protein. You know, it's the, it, the, the protein is both the diagnostic and the treatment. So. so I can't help but think of the work that Dr. Horowitz has done with double dapsone. And, you know, he, we've interviewed Dr. Horowitz and he told us that, you know, and it's, it's a very, I guess, controversial way to say it, but he has a cure for Lyme disease, Lyme alone, which he believes is double dapsone. But the reason why people don't get better is because they have other things going on, maybe an underlying underlying virus that caused, you know, the, the tick-borne yeah. illness to, to activate or other yeah. co-infections which aren't properly treated by the double dapsone protocol that he's using. Yeah. So I, I, again, I wonder with what you're developing, you know, it may help a subset of people, but then beyond that, they may have other co-infections, underlying viruses, but the same technology can be used to target yeah. using pet technology and definitively yeah. prove, okay, we've been able to, to eliminate the, mm -hmm. the Lyme bacteria, but you're left, you have really bad Babesia left. And you know what? We, yeah. we know you've done work with, with malaria, which is very similar right. to, to, exactly. to Babesia. Yeah, 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 and you yeah, target that yeah. next, right? Yeah, I think that's the, that's the point. You know, it's like, if we can do it for one, then people are going to say, can you do it for this one? That's the point. It's like convincing people that what you do really works. This is the difference between, um, you know, being able to declare victory and just talking about it, you know, yes. and, and, and getting paid for it. That's what you want here. You want, that's what Neil wanted to do, right? No, no messing about it. The papers, they're not what we're here for. We're here to make a drug that goes and a, and a diagnosis in people. And it's safe, right? Until you've done that, you've got nothing to talk about. <laughs> you can, you know what I mean? You can't parade it around as though you're some genius. You, know, you can only declare victory and say, what a genius I am. We got it to work. Well, we can say, you're, you're, you're certainly the genius in the Lyme community. We're yeah, grateful you, for you. You, you, you know, you, you, it's dangerous to do that because then you build these, um, I've seen it in the cancer world, um, these sort of rock star, you know, strut guys that go to all the meetings, everybody, you know, you can't do anything without their approval. And then they stifle the field for years, you know, and they, they, they make the thinking uh, very tunnel. They control know. the narrative. And we've seen that in the live community do. since the seventies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I don't speak for Neil, but I feel the same way. I think, you know, what Dr. Hurst means well, but, it, you know, there are many parodies now in, in COVID and it's super controversial, chloroquine, the um, endomethacin, 
you know, you know, disulfiram shows up there, by the way. Hmm. We see these things show up in every disease, I can tell you. In our screens, to, to us, they are false positives. They are non-specifics. You know, to us, they're, they're anathema almost. <laughs> you know, and I think that the problem with, um, you know, GP interactions and, and folks that work with Lyme, and, and Dr. Horace certainly does that, is it's anecdotal, right? You have to... If you want to make this something for everybody, there has to be a clinical trial. There has to be a double-blinded study. There has to be rigor in it. Because what he's doing, it may be extremely important, but until you do that, no one's going to believe you. You know, pharma's not going to pick it up. You must do that. Neil was so passionate about that. We can't just give disulfiram to people and based on anecdotal studies. Let's do a, a rigorous clinical study and I think some of that's going on now I think that um, I don't know how okay with all the clinical trials that are going on but I hope that it is because if, if you can show that and it stands that test that's that's progress yeah but anecdotal stuff is not good Dr. Case, did you mention that that things like disulfiram and dapsone came up in your screenings as potential false positive. So can you just explain what well, that means? I just, just want to make sure I understand that correctly. Yeah, it, it, many libraries, there's repurposed libraries and things. It's amazing to us always how these players show up in a lot of diseases. Does that mean that they're useful for a lot of diseases or are they just artifacts of the screen? You know, that's the key. To us, that's, that's what they are, artifacts of the screen. They usually have chemical liabilities. They've been around for a long time. And they're old drugs. I mean, Dapsone to me goes back to the Civil War. It's like a, a very old drug. You know, it's, is that the best we can do, you know, um, to help people? I mean, if it helps some people, fantastic, you know, but it really is off label and it needs to be brought, you know, in, under control and in with rigor. You know, if you want the respect of the wider scientific community, that's what you got to do. And that's the problem in in Lyme disease, that's where you get this, you know, oh, it's not real. It's a lot more, the controversy. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. You know, it doesn't help that you've got the, the community looking around, people like me and Neil and others that think, well, man, where did you come with that idea? You know, we see these all the time. Maybe, maybe we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. We should be focused on them, but to us, they're they're not real. You know, there, there's no mechanism there. There's no understanding of how they work. They just work. That's not enough. <laughs> so, so, Dr. Hayes, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that because that's a really important issue that we've identified with some of the guests that we've talked mm -hmm. to in the past, right? Mm -hmm. So let's first talk about the relationship between the scientific method and researchers who are using the scientific method because we're talking about that rigor now mm. and, and how we get to the point where the scientific method ultimately becomes the standard because it's accepted by the leaders in the community of people who are doing mm. this research. Yeah, I mean, that's it. It, it. It's a rigorous process. It's, it's, it's double-blinded studies. It's, that's what we accept as real. You know. Meaning replication, right? So you have yeah. so so Hayset yeah. has Hayset does a no. double blind study, and then it gets it gets mm -hmm. it gets it gets replicated by other scientists, other yeah. independent scientists, and then yeah. all of the papers that are written by all the independent scientists are now uh, now reviewed by yeah. by 
by the people who are again rigorously yeah. testing and reviewing the results, yeah. and then yeah. we then we create a standard, right? So now, right. now when you researchers create that standard, that standard now gets gets uh, sent down to the clinicians, and the clinicians mm. are now looking at their patients and determining mm. whether or not their patients fit within the community of people right. who mm-hmm. who were tested uh, yeah. and not outliers. Um, in the community of people who ultimately uh, would benefit from the use of this of this drug, and then shouldn't mm-hmm. the shouldn't the clinicians then be using other tools when they are treating a patient who is an outlier um, outside of bell shaped curve right. of people who are people who are in the population that you tested? Yeah, no, I mean that's that that that's the it, you know I'm not a physician in any way, and they are on the ground, they're in the front line, right? So. Um, I appreciate that, and they. But what they're doing is empirical now, right? They're they're using their gut sense, and, and some are geniuses at that, maybe, but most aren't. You know, they think it's a dangerous path sometimes to go on. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, they're driven by compassion, no doubt about that. Um, but you have to be care. They, they need to be objective. If they get a result that looks interesting and help somebody, that's great for that person, but don't go and extrapolate that now to everybody. Mm. Try to, you know, write books about it. You know, you're not helping. You know, you, you, you know, I think you need to take that. You do what I would do, which would like, well, I'm gonna explore that and I'm gonna try to understand it. You know, I'm gonna to try to develop it. I'm gonna to try to get my colleagues to accept it. And my colleagues are only gonna accept it if I show them, you know, the cohort that was done you know, uh, what the controls were. I know it sounds very boring and everything, and but if you want to expand it, you know, make it real for everybody, that's what you have to do. It's a, a process. Again, I keep coming back to that word. And, you know, there are examples, uh, you know, they're, one, they're fairy tales. Barry Marshall with E. pylori is just, you know, he's a person that deserved the Nobel Prize. You know, he, his genius was to think that E. pylori might be causing these stomach ulcers. And he gives himself the disease to do it. He was that, he was up against this wall of people that just didn't want, it turns out there were, there was some pharma conspiracy in there with Zantac or something like that. One of them drugs, you know, that was going on too, but didn't help, but. But what a, you know, it, 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 there's an example of somebody that went on to prove his point, you know, in a rigorous way and it's accepted. But it, uh, uh, maybe people look at that and think, well, that's what I'm going to do here, you know, or somehow. I don't know. But that's rare. So, but now, haven't you given us, I mean, a community uh, of people a tool that wasn't available before to test the uh the um the efficacy of of a diagnostic and treatment tool right that's where we're headed yeah so i think there's two different approaches right one approach is trial and error and you're arguing that's really dangerous right because even if you're having some level of success to suggest that that level of success you've had with one or two people which may or may not have been 
that particular drug, but it may have been a number of other factors that we can't mm -hmm. really control. Mm -hmm. And then try to apply that to a larger population is not the healthy way to do it. In fact, it's a harmful way of doing it. The better way of doing it, especially if you have tools like the one you've developed, is to understand the interaction uh, right. between the tool, i.e. Dapsone, and, mm -hmm. and, right. and, the, um, and the bacteria that you're seeking to um, to stop right yeah 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 no i agree i mean if we've got this probe and it works and we've got to establish that that means for that to work and i was actually one of the things that came out of the, the line mind meeting i was talking to neil he's not here now i still talk to him by the way <laughs> <laughs> um what if we made this thing how are we going to, what's the clinical trial going to look like? Who are we going to try it on? You know, I think, you know, we really have to try it on the newly infected first, the people that we know are infected. And is anybody doing that trial? And then John Alcock gave his talk. Yes, they're doing the trial, you know, they're doing it. So this was like a huge relief to me because, because um, if it doesn't work there, it's not going to work in somebody with chronic disease, is it? So if we can tick that box, it's game on, you know, then we're, then I'm going to say, yes, we did something worthy of, you know, a news release or something, or, or something to get excited about, you know, it really works. And it's not me doing that experiment. I've given it to somebody else who's a radiologist and they've got a patient and they're in a study, a trial study of X many patients. And somebody makes that correlation between our probe uptake into a zone of infection, a correlative diagnosis with something else. And in, in the in the Alcott studies, I think they're doing treatments too, right? So they're giving them things. Does it go away? Fantastic. If it's Zapsona, does it? If it doesn't, you know, well, we learned something. So, so but I, I think we also have to identify another issue uh, that, that you did talk about, which is the danger associated with creating stars in the either medical or research community. And yeah. we, we interviewed, we interviewed Dr. Alan McDonald, who's a pathologist mm -hmm. and Dr. McDonald had, had um, uh, during the course of, uh, of his career, he had discovered a connection between Lyme and Lewy body dementia. Mm. Uh, and he had been, and, and, and by the way, his papers, which were refused publication in the seventies mm. and eighties have finally, have finally right. seen the light of that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. But what, but what had happened when he initially uh, made the discoveries and was, and were presenting these discoveries and, and was presenting them at, um, at, uh, at uh, different conferences, um, the stars in the field at the time, Alan Steele, for example, mm -hmm. um, were accusing him of doctoring data because, mm -hmm. and, and, he, and he couldn't get his paper published as a result of that. So I think it's really important that, uh, that our listeners re-listen to the part of your very humble but important <laughs> um, 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 response to Matt's question about not accepting star status yourself and not having a community of, of, of researchers and, and doctors who are essentially gatekeepers and then force us down a particular tunnel, which is, of course, where we find ourselves now, which I, I, I want to ask you. So because we have so many doctors who are not given access uh, and their research was not given access to academic uh, papers, and because there wasn't a lot of money available for researchers uh -huh. like you until very recently, 
weren't weren't our clinicians kind of limited in what they could do other than trial and error and doing the kinds of things that Dr. Horowitz and others are doing? Yeah, I'm not going to, you know, say that you shouldn't do it. I mean, I'm just saying that you, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I, 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 what I hope what we do is safe. I don't want to kill anyone. You know, I've seen yeah. people do that in our business. I have seen them do that for their career. I've seen them do it. And I don't understand. To me, it's tantamount to murder, really. I mean, you, you, you've got to understand that, that the, you know, what we're doing for us is a privilege through science anyway. And it's a bloody struggle. It really is. I mean, it's, it, you know, you don't boo-hoo if you're having trouble getting somewhere. I mean, it could be a life's work, right? So the, the case you made with Dr. McDonald that you mentioned, it is now being realized that inflammation from infections is caught, you know, in the head. It's like Alzheimer's and dementia. And I you know, Neil was a big fan, of, you know, I wouldn't say a fan of it, that's not the right word, but proponent of this idea that underlying there may be a bacterial infection, a viral infection. There are definitely diseases we know about. Type 1 diabetes being a good example, taking out your beta cells in, when you were a kid and causing a lifelong disease. You know, I mean, that's there. The realization of how these organs can use our own immune system against us is 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 becoming is emerging in the in the field of immunology and, and in general people are getting more and more covid is just you know you know this damn thing comes in and it causes this you know it's the common cold virus gone on steroids literally it's you know aggressive causes this massive lung damage through inflammation What's, what, what did they learn, you know, early on, you know, perhaps the treatment was not the right one. You know, you remember people up in New York was awful, but, you know, desimetasone, which is a um, potent steroid, would have helped, you know, helping people now, you know, reduce that inflammation, get them through that critical period, you know, and then there's all this secondary infections going on with, you know, bacterial things coming in and, and causing long-term damage. Probably this, you know, there's a new idea of long haul, you know, the long haul syndrome parodies with, with, with chronic Lyme is there. People have been talking about that. Um, so, you know, there, there's a, there's a complex, so we're learning more. So I think that well, ideas are more accepting now, but it's absolutely true that, you're going to be up against the the, the dogma, and uh, but you've got to you've got to fight for you know. Be honest, don't <laughs> cheat. The minute you cheat, you never get you've lost all credibility. The only thing you have as a scientist is your integrity. That's it. You know it, it's you know there's this peer pressure to be the star. I, I you know you know I just think that's the most pathetic thing. When somebody has to feel that way, especially as a scientist, go be a, an actor or a celebrity or something. No, but but no, Dr. said, I, I think the problem is that one of the reasons why so many researchers and professors feel the need to, you know, gain celebrity status is you have to you have to find yeah. the resources to do your research, right? I mean, if you didn't have the Cohen Foundation and the NIH and and and, and, uh, and, yeah. and other other foundations oh. who are funding your research, and you couldn't even do your work, so there there is a certain level of of mm -hmm. sort of 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 
vanity that's required in order to be able to get the money you need to do the research you need to do. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, it's, there's an art to writing these things, how you do it. Um, you know, we, I, uh, you know, I'm able to leverage what we've done in the past. Once somebody said, I remember having, um, I was trying to raise some money and, and they, they, they said, that, well, what have you done? You know, and we, I had the pills for Serenex. They shoved them on the table, you know. And, why, why is this so great? You know, bam, put that down on the table. You know, we made these things and they went into people. No one's done that. You know, I mean, most of the, you know, academic stuff, and Neil said the same thing, you know, that's, you know, trying to get these things that we make across the line they must be real they must work you know we we will you know if they don't work we'll walk away we won't going to continue to try and push that idea we'll try we'll start something else you know i mean we could fail you know i mean we're actually going through a process the last six months i said if by christmas we haven't fixed this we got to start again you know and it was it's actually to do with making a specific inhibitor for the Borrelia, there's there's another path I can follow, and it's to do with the biology of 90. I think we could tease the difference between the human out. But then recently, we it started to show promise that we're starting to separate it, you know. But it's a bunch of hard work. I mean, it. Uh, um, but you, but we're not going forward unless it works. Believe me, we we will not try to pull the wool over anyone's eyes over this. We can't because. You know, the proof is in the pudding. We're going to have to give it to a guy like John Alcott. He's going to have to get a radiologist or somebody to take this agent and put it in people, you know, that are infected with lung. It's got to work, you know, I mean, and it's got to be safe. You know, we can't get past that, you know. So, Dr. Hayston, when you just said that you're working on something now that you just had some breakthroughs with that you were hoping to have some clarity for by Christmas. Is that isolating another protein that's common with Lyme disease that you want to, is that what you're referring well, to? It's the molecule backbone we were working on. We were, we, we found one that looked like it was uh, very specific. It was of the class of molecules we are working on that are known to inhibit the human form. We looked at all of them against Borrelia and found a subset that showed intrinsic selectivity and potency against Borrelia. Great starting place. Still retain some of its human, got to get those two apart. And we were doing this, what's called an SAR campaign based on a crystal structure that we got of, of the Borrelia protein with this uh, um, drug target, this drug rather, uh, it was done by Matt Redembo, who was, uh, was also funded by Bay Area Lime, and he got that thing in three months. He got that for us, big tick. Then we start our big medicinal chemistry campaign. We have the human form in crystal structure over here. We're trying to interrogate these two molecules. We're trying to drive away the human. At the beginning of the process, we were driving away the Borrelia one. It was like getting worse. It's going the wrong way. The human one's getting better. We learned some things about the way that the evolution has conserved things in the Borrelia and prokaryotic pockets because they're under this constant assault from you know each other, and a human one isn't really. And um, but now we found a niche, a little chink in the armor, you know, a little uh, crack, and that we can get in there 
and I started to find a series that looked like we might be able to to separate, get to the mission, you know, to the uh, to the end goal, which was the Borrelia specific version. It turns out there's a there's a backup plan, <laughs> and that's to do with the biology of the human form, which more and more we're being convinced is only associated with bad news and disease. So if we have to go that road, but that's that's my um, uh, consolation prize, <laughs> if you like. Um, I think if we can, uh, the importance of deriving a Borrelia-specific one is it opens the door, not only for that diagnostic test, but other species. Like it will get other investigators interested, I think, in the idea of targeting first this same protein, but some other proteins. And in the Bartonella project, we're working on another protein that we think we can do the same strategy with. That would be big news. If we can change the, the antibiotic paradigm, if you like, that could open up a whole explosion. And it turns out that, you know, working in this, so we, we actually culture line at Borrelia in my lab. We got really good at it. We've figured out how to do it in a high throughput way. I've got chemists that <laughs> usually work with, you know, growing up these bugs, we've got it down to a science. You know, so, you know, we can really, it's become a good model now. It's sort of like a test model for other organisms because it's, you know, it's sort of safe to use on the pathogen scale and uh, become quite a good test species for other targets, I think, and expanding the idea to other things. And I think that could be um, something that it could, I think, ultimately even fund. You know, you can imagine if we have this process we develop for works for Lyme, who's going to fund that? Who's going to pay for that? Well, maybe we could create an entity or a company that, you know, as, a, as, a, as something you could use with COVID or something you could use with other diseases that you could sell to somebody to create value to fund the Lyme research. Because another aspect we think to get a therapeutic and a diagnostic for Borrelia is going to be to have to drive this thing ourselves all the way to a product, you know, and find a way to do that. Then pharma might get interested in that business. Um, so. Dr. Said, you mentioned uh, antibiotics again, right? And my thought, my my question is, how are antibiotics different than what you're developing? And it sounds like to me that, like something like doxycycline for acute Lyme disease, it's it's a very very heavy broad spectrum antibiotic, and there's a lot of I guess secondary things it can do to the human yeah. body. So. Yeah. With your targeted therapy, I think you're saying that you're not worried about the side effects because it is so targeted. And that's the advantage mm -hmm. of, of what you're looking into versus a broad spectrum antibiotic or antiviral or whatever it may be to yeah. treat other things. Yeah, and because we use the imaging part, which is that we know what we're hitting, if you like. We can see in a human, you know, where the disseminated disease is first. So the same a drug, if you like, or imaging agent is now used to bring in this toxin. One of them we call berser a berserker molecule. It, it sneaks in and it causes release of local um, uh, single oxygen that really kills the organism, doesn't affect the human cells around it. So that's a little different than an antibiotic that hits an enzyme and it, it blocks its activity. The other problem is with conventional antibiotics is they can develop resistance because we have this thing that targets a housekeeping enzyme. It's not under uh, selective pressure anymore. It's non-essential to the organism. So it doesn't care whether you inhibit it or not. 
There may be some circumstances where it matters in its life cycle, but it isn't in its ability to reproduce, it seems. Um, it may be a stress thing. We don't know why an organism would have a protein that it didn't care about if you inhibit it. Perhaps it's redundant. There's another way around losing that function. Probably that's the reason. So that's good, right? So we can still hit it. It's always going to be there. And then in comes something else, a toxin, that in one case will generate this single oxygen species. It gets into the organism and it damages. That's the berserker thing. It causes damage of multiple proteins. That such a thing will never develop drug resistance. Um, we can also bring in other things. We've got the imaging. We can bring in an isotope, like an alpha-emitting agent, which could be used in conjunction with the PET agent, which is used, which is a cancer approach. Again, you know, only hits that organism. Um, theoretically, could remove it completely, even down to the single cell. So. Um, that's the difference between that and a conventional antibiotic. Yeah. So not only is it damaging your gut and, 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 you know, removing good gut flora, it's also allowing you to avoid having this antibiotic resistant bacteria, which we see in a right. lot of late stage Lyme patients. And I think right. that brings me to my next follow-up question is a, a lot of chronic Lyme patients have this disseminated Lyme or disseminated mm. multi-systemic infection where it's in their brains, right? It's in their mm. tissue. It's no longer yeah. just in their bloodstream. So with your, with your approach, Will this be able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain and get into all these spots where the Lyme bacteria and co-infections like to hide deep within your body? Yeah, um, so uh, in, interestingly, in a parallel cancer project, we've been working with a, quite a famous group at, at Duke that work on glioblastoma. And one of their um, interests is in drugs that get across the blood-brain barrier. And some of our probes we've got similar that target the human species we're able to see uptake into the tumors in those uh, models. And we're hoping to actually advance the, the human version of what will be the Lyme version, PET version in a human study with that group. Um, so that will give us a lot of confidence that we can cross the blood brain barrier. We think, we, why do they get across the blood brain barrier? Um, it could be because um, they're taking, you know, there are transporters and our target has the human version has a means to be trafficked over there. I think a lot of disease though, inflammation causes a breakdown in the blood, human blood brain barrier, um, certainly gliomas. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking that we may indeed be able to get, you know, um, at, you know, things going on in the brain. It'll be an interesting to see, um, I think the power of what we're doing, we will be able to see it. <laughs> That's the thing. You know, we will know, let's say in a, let's say we can say, well, in convention, we've got to the point where we can say in conventional infections, we can see with our probes, Borrelia, we know we can see it. So let's now go look into other populations, you know, with um, uh, where we don't know why they've got dementia or they've got Lewy bodies or whatever. Do they have Borrelia in, you know, in the head? So, um, you know, which doesn't, you know, which is not going to be post-mortem, you know, I mean, it's going to be a live individual. We'll be able to ask that question. Um, you know, we start seeing signals in the head that we don't see in normal people. We'll know something's going on. 
you either got cancer or maybe you've got an, an underlying infection. So just like the work you're doing here to target the Lyme, you're confident that you can cross a blood-brain barrier because of other work you've done in the cancer world. And if not, you'll be able to see it and then work on that, I think is what you're telling us. Yeah, and there's, you know, and again, you, you know, let's, let's say we do need to, you know, I mean, with gliomas, it, you know, I constantly talk with the, the glioma folks. Well, if a tumor's in, in the head, isn't it breaking down the blood-brain barrier? <laughs> and that's why my probe gets in there. And they'll they'll say no no our model it preserves the con you know the continuity of the blood brain barrier okay um, but that, I mean in a normal human um, you know that you know we know our probes that well in the animal studies and actually we, we we've got a clinical paper that just came out that um, uh, on on one of our probes it doesn't go into the normal you know head it's not normally found in the brain let's put it that way we would we don't see probe. It leaking into into normal neuronal tissue so um you know i think that's the value of of these types of probes you know and, and the key to answering this question that has been unanswerable before except in post-mortem you know are there active organisms in an infection in our head <laughs> most disturbing if we find that to be true right i think you know neil was said then it's a game changer, right? Everyone's going to be on this because, um, you know, that's scary. Yeah, I mean, if you can prove that things like dementia and, and yeah. brain-related ailments are caused by viruses or bacteria using your technology, I think that's going to open up yeah. a ton of other doors for you beyond the Lyme community. Yeah, but, you know, when we say something like that, we can say it with certainty. We can say it in a, te it's in a testable way, right? That's the important bit. That's when you get credibility. Only if you can do that. If we so, have a probe that allows that to be tested, people will accept it. If you're so, just saying it, I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> well, let's talk about that, Dr. Haystead. So, you know, I know you're still in the middle of your work and you've made a lot of great progress. And you have a ton of great organizations backing you and you yeah. seem to be the lead, right? I mean, we were looking at some of the, the, the Bay Area line, you know, uh, well, diagrams they have out there and it seems to be you're kind of at the top as far as the, the researcher, right? So, well, no, no, let's not take this. Kim Lewis is that is doing some good stuff. I mean, I, I love what he did with, with the antibiotic. Um, it's a great story, actually. And it's a shame that it, he discovered something that was already, but it's still a great piece of work. Uh, don't take that away. I mean, that's a great piece of work. There's, and what Michelle Baumbaum is doing is with, with immunity is extremely important, you know, the, 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 you know, to name but a few. There are others out there um, that are doing things that are, that, that, that are, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only here because of Neil. Remember that. I mean, I, I'm, I've got super excited about this project. It ticks a number of boxes where I think what we do could really make a difference, you know. But let's talk about that before, before I get to that, the, the question I was just asking. So like what Dr. Kim Lewis is doing, for example, one of the things that I think, and maybe I just don't understand the science enough, is how can a drug or this natural antibiotic, I think it's hydro, hygromycin, how can that be? How can that be used in a chronic Lyme patient? Or maybe it can't be because you're just targeting the spirochete, right? Yeah. And we know chronic Lyme people it's so much more than just a spirochete or or Borrelia-Burgdorferi right. infection. So, do you believe that 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 discovery will actually have an impact alone to help people that are chronically ill improve their health? 
I don't know, but I, one thing I, you know, if he can in a clinical trial show it's as good as doxycycline, it's an alternative to that, that's important. Maybe it could be used in combination with doxycycline. Maybe it can be used with pregnant women, for example, you know, because it doesn't get across the blood brain barrier, but it's or it could be, it's an oral drug, right? So I think you have to, you know, you, we all accept the, um, uh, uh, you know, these co-infections, that's new, right? But you can't forget where you're coming from. Let's let's try to get one thing done. <laughs> let's then we can talk about you know co-infection. I mean, it was it almost became overwhelming to us at one point. We got um, we're well into line. We've got we're super excited about it. We're on this. We've got this massive train going forward on that. I think we're going somewhere. I'm, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say I want to talk to the funders about doing the clinical trial. In the next year or so, um, you know, we we there, there's some things about a an imaging agent that make it easier down the regulatory path. We've already done it once. It's it's a the bar is a little lower than uh, for a drug, for example. So we could really make progress there and have that companion diagnostic going forward, and then the treatment behind it, um, and then you know the um, um, the Cohen's Foundation through Ben said, "Can you?" Neil wanted to work on uh, Bartonella. Can you do that too? And they go, "Well, as long as Ed's involved, Ed Bradshaw's involved, yes." And Monica, you know, they've got all the models, so let's do it. You know, but it's it's a it's um, you know that is actually making progress too. But we're getting now we're getting heaped on. You know, with we're always, there's always so much one person can do, and you want to do it well, right? So we're managing it quite well, I think. And um, meanwhile, we've got cancer things going on. <laughs> um, and a company, you know, so um, so there's a lot going on with me. But um, it, it, but that's, and Kim is, what Kim's doing is important. Don't take away from just because, oh, that's never going to work for, for people with chronic disease. It might, it might help some people in chronic disease, you know, I mean, Neil and I had this, and it's an important conversation to have with everybody. What if we make these things? We find that, well, yes, we can see, you know, infections in people with, with Lyme. And in some individuals, yes, there's a correlation between, it, you have an underlying infection. Our pro shows that it's there, but there may be some that don't. That's not what's going on. But he said that was as important as being able to say that with confidence. So that they can go and find out, you know, stop taking the antibiotic combinations for that disease. It's not the right one. Maybe you need to look for something else on the, you know, that there's a re you are ill. There's no doubt about that. But it's an underlying autoimmune disease or something or another infection, right? And that maybe they get some peace, you know, you know. I mean, I think it would be a while before you could definitively say that because, like I said, we need strong clinical data. To back that up before you could say that but you, you, it, the rigor's got to be there so that people can make an informed choice right that they're not living on faith all the time and the goodwill of a physician that you know may have some something that could help them you know but um, yeah i think this science needs to be introduced into this field you know to, to make it make it really go away <laughs> right. And it'll also help 
prevent all the conflict and drama and and mm -hmm. disagreements in the Lyme community. If you can use a scientific method like you're doing and use pure science, nobody can refute that in the end, right? Yeah, I know it always be. I mean, we we can't get people to get vaccinated. <laughs> people just never believe anything. But but uh, but but yes, the main body. You know, that's what we look for. I mean, I, I I rely on that main body to know that if this stuff does end up in people, we're not going to hurt anyone. You know, that would be a nightmare. You know, we did everything we could to do it. And we got others. It's so important that other others repeat what you do before you jump into that. You know, and um, you know, you always have to remember that. You have to believe in what you're doing. So that case, I don't care. Do yeah. I'm curious about your thoughts on autoimmune because you mentioned it a couple of times. I think you mentioned one doctor who's doing some work with with autoimmune and how you could have an underlying you know autoimmune problem that then allows the Lyme bacteria to keep get you really sick. But could it be the other way around? So yes. I guess what I'm asking is, can can Lyme trigger autoimmune, but also autoimmune trigger dormant Lyme? Is it worth work both ways in your opinion? I don't know about the latter, but certainly the former. I think you know cellular damage due to infection and inflammation can lead to an underlying arthritic type syndrome for sure. I mean, and I'm sure that the basis of rheumatoid arthritis in humans may have a lot of infection underlying because it's not always you know it's only a minority is it hereditary in in in, in there are certainly autoimmune diseases have some hereditary element in them, but very few, a lot of them, you know, we're all impacted. The most healthy of us develop, you can develop autoimmune disease that's debilitating. And one wonders where that's coming from, right? I would not, I, I think it could be, it's perfectly feasible and reasonable to think it's an underlying infection that caused it. I mean, exposure to the environment, that cancer, that's for sure. We all accept that, you know, and look at, look at, come back to E. pylori. What a revelation. A bacteria, no less, was causing cancer. You know, 80% of stomach tumors disappeared overnight, literally because of that, that treatment. And that's the inspiration for this too, right? But look at what he did. Look how rigorous he was. Look at what he did to, to, to convince the world when the world was against him. It's a fantastic story that this was right and he was rigorous about it. So uh, all power to him, you know. I mean, it, uh, it's a sort of very similar story. And Neil, actually, one of his things was that inflammatory breasts may be associated with Bartonella infections and he started to work on that. And we, we continue to want to work on that, actually. That was one of the things we talked about marrying our stuff that we were doing with breast cancer funded by the DOD with this, you know, could we correlate, in, you know, um, uh, um, appearance of this surface form with a Bartonella infection in breast tissue and, and transformation. That, that's something Neil was really wanting to work on. So again, a bit like Barry Marshall's story with E. pylori. I do want to ask, so it sounds like you're a pretty firm believer that an infection with Lyme and co-infections can lead to autoimmune complications mm. and we've interviewed over 220 podcast guests and mm. many of them have told us that they've developed out of the blue autoimmune diseases after developing chronic Lyme mm. and that as they were able to properly treat and get better from a Lyme standpoint their autoimmune conditions actually either got better or completely mm. went away so do you think that that's yeah. something that 
is yeah. plausible or realistic that the autoimmune condition is being caused or basically pressured by the bacterial or yeah. viral infections. And yeah. as you, as you then treat those bacterial and viral infections, the autoimmune condition can actually reverse itself. Yeah, I think so. And then there's some, some, uh, you know, if there's a persist, just like any allergy, right? Almost as a, you know, an example that would be similar. If you're persistently being exposed to antigens, that's not good. And, and also you could lead to, the infection might have gone away, but the damage was done. And, you know, uh, actually, talk about my wife again, she, after her Lyme infection, she developed arthritic symptoms. And she went on anti-TNF drugs, which was Embrol and Remicade, a tremendously powerful, game-changing drugs. And for her, they worked. And um, she was on them for quite some time, and it was, you know, physical game-changer for her. She was back to her old self she was exercise fanatic doing all that and then interestingly and this is i think a new phenomenon that people are studying is that they were they were so helpful for so long it was like her t-cells had forgotten <laughs> these memory t's you know that underlying autoimmunity the reason for the autoimmune disease she does still take um, methotrexate, some other things, but on a on a much lower level than she had been doing in the past. And so, one theory we have is that perhaps, you know, that underlying post Lyme uh, damage, if you like, uh, you know, because she did respond to the antibiotic, um, went away with with the right therapy. In her case, tremendously lucky, right? It's not. I don't know if it's completely gone. She still takes some things, but not not these quite serious drugs or these biologics. Um, so I think that yeah, I mean I think that if we can, you know, in in some cases, if there's an underlying infection going on, it, you know, that's been difficult to detect, and it's still there, and the antibiotics there, maybe they're antibiotic resistant. I don't know. I've worked on them. You know, we found that. Um, Doxy doesn't see when they when they in our growth experiments that we're doing in the lab, they, they don't respond to doxycycline in when they're in this what we call the what they call the stationary phase. They, they you can regrow them out, you know, and they're certainly responsive in that logarithmic phase. But here in, you know, they say, well, that's no wonder that it's hard to treat this disease. <laughs> if they if if you you know, don't treat it early enough when it goes into this hunkered down state. That's going to be a, that's, now it's got like a force field of biofilms around it, <laughs> which are highly anergenic, probably. You know, well, that's, that leads us to a good question. It's like in your wife's scenario, it sounds like she had acute Lyme and probably eradicated the, the bacteria, mm -hmm. but it sounds mm -hmm. like it was damaged, the Lyme arthritis. And she took some yeah. of these, these medications like, um, the anti-TNF that were able to help with Lyme arthritis. But on the other hand, if somebody has late stage disseminated Lyme, oh, yeah. is, it, is, it, is it possible that Lyme arthritis is due to a persistent infection as well? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a persistent ongoing uh, source of antigens or irritations to, to the body, you know, and they probably affecting host proteins. Inflammation is, uh, is our, both our friend and enemy, <laughs> right? Well, on that note, I know in, in 2017, at the end of 2017, there was a big uh, in the news piece about you and some of the work you were doing with autoimmune diseases and uh, cancer and using using this molecule, the the, T the TNF alpha 
for people that were that were dealing with inflammation, autoimmune, and cancer. So is that where you got the idea to use that for your wife and her arthritis? No, 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 not at all. No, no, I can't say that. No, no, that was way before she. This was. Oh, we were just starting Serenix when this was happening. It was all. She, we were our own. She got it. In the, it was in our yard that she picked up the tick, and um, this would have been circa. Where are we? 2000. Well, Alice is, 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 was born in 2003. So then, right then, in that first run, circa 2020, uh, 2002. Yeah, no, way before now. No, we weren't thinking about that at all at that time. We were thinking about HSP90 and cancer. Um, no, the anti-TNFs appeared around that time. They're, they were... They came out of the you know molecular biology revolution and everything for the genome project, and they were just revolutionary treatments for um, arthritis by controlling TNF. Um, we have gotten interested in that signaling pathway, both through the HSB90 protein. You know, one of the things that we were quite interested in why it worked on proliferating cells. What kind of proliferating cells do we have? We have cancer cells, or something in the gut. T cells, immune cells. When you when they see an antigen, they proliferate. What does ninety inhibitors do there? Oh, they're potent inhibitors of T cell proliferation. And then I knew quite a bit about HIV, and I was thinking, well, you know what HIV does when it infects a person? It creates a thing called a cytokine storm. It's not a very good, efficient virus. It looks for this CD four receptor <coughs> on the surface. When it infects an individual, it causes many T cells to divide with the sole purpose of increasing its probability of finding a CD4 positive T cell. <clears throat> so we've been working on the idea that you could use our inhibitors prophylactically to prevent in early infection. Perhaps you could prevent um, you know, HIV ever getting transmitted because if it can't find a T cell within 48 hours, it, it's eliminated. And actually, you know, Right now, there's a there's a combination therapy called PrEP that is used. You know, it's called the morning after pill in the in the in the gay community, and it's had a massive impact on blocking transmission of the virus. You know, they simply prevent the propagation. We actually went with this idea of using our HSP ninety inhibitor, you know, which is safe in humans because it's given in to cancer patients at very high doses. Could you use this as an anti-HIV drug? We're still trying to push that agenda, actually. And um, by simply, not as an antiviral, but something that blocked T-cell proliferation acutely. And, you know, uh, actually, I ended up talking to Bill Gates himself about that at one point, which is really amazing. He didn't buy it, but I still believe it to be true <laughs> that it could work, you know. And um, so... And then we've, we've also had, an, you know, that got us very interested in TNF signaling and proliferation in immune cells. And that's been the basis of our new company, which is called IDIS Bio, which looks at TNF signaling inside cells. And we believe this might be an alternative to Embrol and Remicade. We're targeting an enzyme called TAC1, which is a protein kinase in there. And they develop a series of exquisitely selective molecules that hit that target. And we hope it will be an oral drug that you can use in, as an alternative to Embrel and Remicade, which are biologics. So 
yeah, you know, you you this whole I, this whole platform that I work on allows me to touch in all these different fields, and we're always looking for opportunities where we might be able to use it or give it to somebody that might make a use of it. So, so Jason, you're you're giving us a ton of hope and confidence in the future <laughs> for people that are just debilitated and chronically ill, and hopefully, everybody listening is feeling a little bit empowered and, and having some sense of of relief for the future. Of, of their health, but give us an idea of, of time frame and next steps for you. Cause it sounds like you said earlier that um, you're looking to find some funders for clinical trials in the next year or so. So what does that mean time-wise for better testing and better treatment for Lyme with, with all the work you're doing and all the people you're collaborating with? Yeah, well, we're on a fast track right now because we, we have a lead molecule that it does target the human form, but it, but it exploits the biology between the human and the bacteria in that the human targeting part only occurs in metastatic cancer. Uh, so, you know, that would have a dual use then. Maybe you could fund it, its use in Lyme. That's one business idea we've been bandying about. Um, but that one's a pet agent and uh, some fortuitous events happened <clears throat> as they always do. There was a paper that came out in Nature uh, Chemistry, very prestigious journal, um, in April, and it described a new isotope called cerium-134, and it's a positron-emitting lanthanide metal <laughs> um, that um, you can chelate. And why is that important? So chelates are used... Um, medically already there's a chelate called dota they use an mri for a for a compound a metal called gadolinium which is also a lanthanide metal related to this cerium so we were quite excited well you can give people this chelate and, they, and it doesn't hurt them good okay so let's link it to our our uh, hsb19 image and our borrelia targeting drug and now with this new um positron emitting that's pet enabled metal so it's a radioactive metal that's produced right now by um the department of energy so it's kind of cool you, you're talking to people that have these linear accelerators and working with it with a accelerated oak ridge and they're sending us we became a test site for this cerium 134 why are we excited about it because it's something that you can give to a radiologist you know, and they could take the molecule that we make, mix it with this radionucleotide. So the chelating part that grabs this metal will then carry it to the the tick, I mean, to the um, Borrelia and allow us to image it in a very practical. It's a very high energy. It's a bit like the analogy would be FTG PET that you commonly use in, except this one's got a three-day half-life instead of a few hours. So it's a high energy emitter. So it would be a very, very sensitive, non-invasive uh, molecule or probe to detect infection at an extraordinarily sensitive level. This is ever this is like a dream for us because we were we had another method we were using which involved an iodine uh, isotope, a little bit more difficult. Um, this one's made that path very simple now. It means that we go through the regulatory process to get into humans. What we worry about now is the chemist, the chemical entity. You know, so we take all of our 
synthesis, that has to be under GMP, our safety testing studies that the FDA require. It's all about the chemical, not about the radioisotope. When we get, we, we've shown that the chemical is safe um, at, at the doses we plan to use in humans, which is going to be a microdose, non-pharmacological. It's just a matter of mixing it with the isotope, and um, which is a positron emitter at microdoses. So that's not non-lethal, non-dangerous to the person. It's just like taking, doing a regular PET. So this is now a fast track. I believe that if we can demonstrate with our current molecule, um, proof of concept in an animal model of infection, we are now on a regulatory path with that molecule. We will go all out to move it into humans. And that can take a year to a year and a half to do with the money, <laughs> which isn't a staggering amount of money you might want to know. It's a, probably about a, a million to $2 million to do that, to get to that IND through the safety. Um, the, there is a, there's a, a regulatory process for the nuclear part, but that is, involves um, just, you know, um, making sure the isotope itself is clean. It's not got any contaminants in it. That's, but that's handled by uh, you know, Department of Energy and <laughs> physicists and things. So um, I think it would be, you know, something really worth talking about, you know, that we would be in a clinical. And, you know, and if that allows us to, to plug into hopefully doc, Dr. Alcott's or, or somebody's newly infected trial, where we can show in a small cohort, I think you don't need 20 patients where you've got, you know, let's, let's, let's do the basic thing. Not, not all Lyme infections are significant are signified by the bullseye, but we do accept that if you've got a bullseye, probably a good chance you've got a, uh, so we could even say, let's do it in the most where we've no doubt this person's got, do we get a signal? Can we follow that? Those folks, Yes, tick that box. Now, you, now you've got something that you can say, I'm going to look at people that, you know, you can do that in, in a Dr. Horowitz way, which might be anecdotal. It might be in those patients that Dr. Horowitz and others deal with. Let's have a look at you. This is not going to hurt you. I know I have faith that it should find the spirochete if it's there, you know, or if you've got, it will even, we know our probes will bind to that biofilm, by the way. So that could be another signal we might pick up. So... So, you know, that's my hope, you know, and then we've got the, perhaps we've got the therapy behind it. Well, Dr. Hayes, thank you for joining us and giving us such hope for the future. I think, I know I'm walking away from this interview feeling just energized and hopeful for, for what's to come in the, in the next year or so with all your research and please stay in touch and keep us posted so we can share that with everybody who listens and follows us on social media. And again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Yeah, it was fun. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, nice to meet you and keep, keep up the good work. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Timothy Hastead. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Hastead and his work, please visit medschool.duke.edu. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media button you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. 
4th. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.